All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gathering together, Lord. Lord, help us to be mindful of your presence here. Help us to be mindful of the holy word that we hold in our hands and that we're about to hear. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit has to say to us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would uh, humble ourselves before you and understand, Lord, that it is uh, a privilege for you to speak to us through your word. We pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate these truths to us, Lord, and we ask that you do this in a way where you would transform us, not that we would just get information, but we would literally be changed and transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray that we would be different people when we leave, Lord. We pray that we would be a little closer to you. I pray that those who are just in a tough spot tonight, those who are experiencing a lot of anxiety, fear, just confusion, and maybe uncertainty, I pray tonight that you would give them the anchor of their soul. Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all things. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes upon you on the things above and not dwell on the things of earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, can you say hello to a couple of people, please? All right, come on in, everybody. Have a seat and grab your Bibles. Hello to everyone at home. All right, so uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tonight, if you want to turn there. And last week we made it almost ha- about halfway through, so uh, we're going to get a little bit of a running start and start in verse 13 of chapter 10, but... Just so you know what's going on, um, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church that he established by preaching the gospel, and many of those who he preached the gospel to came to faith in Christ. The church was established. He began to teach this church the things of the Lord. He was there for 18 months, and then he continued on into his missionary journeys, and uh, he got word from someone from Chloe's household, which we don't really know who that is, but he got word about some of the things that were problematic in this church and sort of to put it in a nutshell, very relevant to our culture today that this church was carnal. They were, uh, carnal means they were fleshly. So they were basically going about doing things just their own way. They were not submitted to the things of God, and they were just making up what they wanted to do, and because of that, um, there's a lot of problems in this church. This church, as we've been pointing out, the parallels between the modern-day uh, Western culture church that we live in, uh, a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels to the church at Corinth. And so as uh, Apostle Paul is dealing with these issues, uh, he's really hitting on this uh, point that we've been looking at in regards to what we would call Christian liberty. So what do we do with 
the freedom that we have in Christ? What do we do in the gray areas, the areas where maybe there's not a specific scripture that says don't do this specific thing? So what do we do in those areas? And this is what he's been dealing with. And in particular, he's been talking about these uh, meat, a particular issue that they're having is meat that was sacrificed to idols and if it was okay to eat that meat. So as he's been dealing with that, that's uh, one of the specific issues where they were exercising their Christian liberty in a bad way. So in one sense, was it a problem to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? No. He said an idol's nothing. In other, it's just fake. It's a little, you know, whatever you want. It's a made-up thing. So it's nothing. However, if you have that knowledge, it's uh, possible that that knowledge will puff you up. But conversely to that, love edifies. So he lays down this principle of how to use our liberties. And how we use our liberties, can I do this thing? Well, you're not going to go to hell for it, and it's not a specific sin, but yet it might be a problem for somebody else that's another believer. It might cause them to stumble. And he said, that's how we're to use our liberty. We're to use it responsibly. We're to understand the privilege that we have to be Christians, to be believers, to be saved, to have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, to have the Holy Spirit to have the direction of God in our life. It's amazing privilege, but it also comes with responsibility. So we left off last week, starting in chapter 10 and working our way through to this point where he's saying, there's an example I want you to look at in the Old Testament. Look at the children of Israel. And they were called by God and God delivered them from Egypt and provided for them in the promised land, directed them. And they used that privilege most of the time to complain against God, to rebel against God and Moses, to doubt God, to um, come against the things that God was leading Moses to do and saying, we want to go back, get us out of here. What did you do? You brought us all out here to die. And it, it said in, uh, in chapter 10, I think it was verse 2 or 3, it says, that there is bodies scattered throughout the whole wilderness. In essence, these people in their rebellion, they didn't use responsibly the blessing and privilege that they had for what God had called them to do, to walk and live by faith so that they would be a testimony to those other nations. Instead, they were fleshly or carnal. They got into their flesh in many occasions and didn't, walk by faith, and when they got to the promised land, they didn't go in. And that's where God was taking them. In other words, they didn't finish well. In other words, they lacked the faith that they needed to go into the promised land, and that was the key to going into the promised land. It was faith. So why was their faith lacking? Because they had spies that went into the promised land, and they looked, and they said there are big enemies there, and were scared to go in, even though God told them to. Even though God said, I'll fight the battles for you. So because of their lack of faith, they never experienced the fullness of the life that God had for them. And end up just scattered in the wilderness. 
And so as Paul's using those illustrations, he's bringing it to the Corinthians and saying, look, what are you guys doing with your liberty? How are you responsibly using your gifting and your calling that God has given to you? And the way to do that is to submit our whole life to God and allow Him to lead and guide us and not our own desires and desire for pleasure and desire for self-fulfillment. Another way to say that is use all your liberty, privileges, and responsibilities as a believer to glorify God. If you do that, all the other things will take, take care of itself. So that's why we'll look at verse 13. And so with that context in chapter 10, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's in regards to the example of the children of Israel that fell in the desert. He says in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. As he's saying that, he's letting us know that we are going to face temptations, we are going to face trials, and he's saying those trials will actually develop and strengthen our faith. That's why God allows trials into our life, because we need them. If when temptation, trial, difficulty, hardship comes our way, and we don't exercise our faith and trust in God, then our faith will not grow but our flesh will grow. We can get really fleshy. So temptations are opportunities to grow in our faith. And James chapter 1, verse 2 says to count it all joy when you go through various trials. And the reason he, James says that is because to understand trials correctly is to understand that they are extremely beneficial to the thing that's most important for a believer, and that's our faith. So just like a muscle must be broken down to grow, our faith is the same way. Pressure has to be applied to us so that our faith can be exercised. And that's why in James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, let patience have its perfect work. And that word patience is hupomone in the Greek, which means Ability to stay under fire. The ability to stay under pressure. Meaning that we don't run every time something difficult happens. But we meet it with faith. And then it says in James, when we do that, the end result is that we're complete and lacking in nothing. Because faith is being strengthened. 
So this is what Paul is saying here as he grabs that Old Testament example, brings it to the Corinthians, and now he's bringing it to us, and he's saying all the things that happen to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, especially in the wilderness, they're examples for us or warnings or instructions for us that we don't have to do that because the same temptations they experienced, they're the same ones we'll experience. There's not any new temptations. That's what uh, the benefit of having a, a working understanding and knowledge of the Bible is because you will see your life in the Bible. You will experience the things that are happening in the Bible are happening to you and you'll gain confidence knowing, okay, I must be on track because these same temptations that the children of Israel face, I'm facing those. And then he's saying that God will always provide a way of escape. But that doesn't mean that he makes us take it. It means that we have to take it. We have to exercise our faith in not succumbing to the temptation. And as we do, then we'll grow and we'll overcome that temptation. You want to hear something really amazing? In 1 John chapter 2, it actually tells us that God's love is perfected in us through our obedience. So it's like getting a, a love letter in an envelope. And that envelope is obedience to God. And the payoff for our obedience is God's love maturing and growing and developing inside of us. But 1 John chapter 2 tells us that that will not happen unless we exercise obedience in those trials. And when we do, it's sort of like we get past this initial part of our Christian life and we grow into this love that God has for us which is the ultimate payoff for the believer. It's the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It's the experience of God's love. So every believer has that, but if obedience to God is not exercised, that love will never grow to maturity. It'll be this immature love that's hard to experience. And you know what happens oftentimes to a believer that's immature and not experiencing the love of God? It's easy to shrink back into sin because the love of God is what keeps us from sin. The Bible says the love of God constrains us. So it's because God's love is so amazing. And when we experience it maturing in our life and when we fall in love with God more and more, we don't want to do anything to mess that up. Similar to a marriage where you're in a good marriage, where you're in love and you love your spouse and, and you don't want to do anything to mess that up. So the more you're in love with your spouse, the less those temptations outside of that marriage are a problem for you. So in verse 14, in that regard, he says, therefore, so because of all that, my beloved Flee idolatry. 
So the whole thing ends up being idolatry. So the sins of Israel were idolatry. They can idolize themselves. In other words, putting themselves above God. Anything that's more important to us than God, we can idolize our family. We can idolize our careers. We can idolize many things. Sometimes we don't think of those things as idols. But anything we put before God is an idol. Entertainment, that's a big one. Money is a big one. You guys can, you can probably fill your head with things that, but anything that takes the place of God. And to think of idolatry, just again, think of a marriage. What other relationship is acceptable in a marriage covenant to enter into that marriage covenant? It's not a, a polygamous type of uh, arrangement that God has. He says to leave your mother and father and cling and the two shall become one flesh. In other words, there's an establishment of a relationship in a husband and wife relationship that there shouldn't be any other violations of relationships that should enter in to take the place of that other person even a little bit. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So when, when he says flee idolatry, here's what I, I notice. A lot of times we would flee idolatry, but we don't consider I, some of the things that we do as idolatry as the Bible does. And that's why we don't flee it. So there's a lot of things we can just add into our life that take the place of God and be sure of this. Be sure of this. If you're not filled with God, picture a, a glass of water. If it's not filled with God, it's like half full. For sure, other things are going to come and take that place. Because the way God made our hearts, we sense any sort of emptiness. And if God isn't filling our hearts, filling our lives, then for sure, something else is going to take the place of that. That goes for a country. That goes for a family that goes for a civilization. So like in our country, we see, we're actually witnessing firsthand, watching God shrinking from the influence in the center of society. And when that happens, it's not like nothing else comes into the place of that. So we're, all the things that we're seeing filling that vacuum where God should be, that's idolatry. What well, We live in an idolatrous country. And because we've been able to see the movement away from God, we see that there's a fulfillment of those things where God used to be. Now, God hasn't moved, right? God's everywhere, but He moves in our heart if we don't surrender our full life to Him. That's why the Bible says we're to love Him with a little bit of our mind, a little bit of our strength, a little bit of our soul, right? No, you should be stoning me now. No, He doesn't say that. And the reason He doesn't say that is because we're in a, a covenant relationship with Him that nothing else should take the place of Him. And it only makes sense understanding who God is and what we are. 
understanding like uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed. And so that means we're having, uh, we, we constantly are making choices regarding the pressures that are being put on us. So the world is putting pressure on us from the outside to make, it, make us conform to its image. The Holy Spirit is putting pressure on us from the inside to conform us into the image of Christ. And it's our will that surrenders to one or the other. So we're either surrendering to one or the other. There's no in-between, and there's no not surrendering. So we're either surrendering to God or surrendering to something else. So that's why he says, flee idolatry. So you really have to be prayerful about asking the Lord if there is anything idolatrous in your heart. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you're naive to that. But maybe you kind of do know. Maybe there's things that dominate your life and you just kind of throw God in when there's time. He's not the priority. He's not the first order in your life. And because of that, then, that would be something that would be considered an idol. And you need to come back and get things in the right order in your life because your life is not ordered correctly. The only way to deal with idolatry is is to flee it, not to saunter away from it, not to slowly move away from it. It's to flee it. So if you recognize it, you are to treat that recognition of idolatry like a rabid pit bull is chasing you. And I'm not against pit bulls necessarily, so don't, I'm just saying the point is rabid one. Don't pet it. Don't let it hang around in the backyard. Don't feed it. Split. Get out of there. Run. Because sin is not your friend. Don't treat it like it is. Treat it like a home invasion robbery. Not like a little lapperdoodle or a big lapperdoodle. Don't treat it like that because it will destroy you. So now, how you respond or what you're thinking to what I'm saying is going to be how you fit into this next verse. I speak to you as wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. In other words, if if you're wise, you'll recognize that Paul is right. So then, in that regard, now we got a whole other thing going on. Something else that was happening in the church, and it had, had to do, again, with meat sacrificed to idols. But look how, how he, he paints this. So the, the Christian communion, in verse 16, the cup of blessing, which we bless, so that's like we take communion, is not the communion of the blood of Christ, Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread 
which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? That word communion is koinonia in the Greek means fellowship. So what he's, he's saying as believers, as Christians, you take communion. And when you take communion, you all understand what you're doing. So you, you take the bread and you take the cup. You're all doing it together and there's fellowship. That's happening, one, vertically with God. And then two, horizontally with the other people that you're doing that with. It'd be easier to understand in their day because they would just use one loaf of bread and pass it around. So everybody would take of the same bread and drink of the same cup. So just as that is verse 17, he says, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So just as there's fellowship, unity of the body of Christ and with Christ when we do that. So that, that really tells us some, some beautiful things about communion. We're going to talk about that a little bit more if we get to it. So then he says, well, what about this? What about Israel? In verse 18, Israel, after the flesh... Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? In other words, when the Jews, so the Jews were still doing sacrifices at this time at the temple. This tells us the temple hasn't been destroyed yet, but we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and this was written around 50 AD. So there are still sacrifices going on. So what would happen in the Jewish sacrifices? So somebody would bring... Uh, an animal, their, their animal that they would purchase or it would be their own animal. And they would give it to the priest. The priest would put it on the altar, sacrifice it, and give portions of the meat to the priest would get a portion of the meat. And then the first part of the meat would be sacrificed to God as an offering. And then the third part of the meat, uh, the person that brought the sacrifice, they would get that. So he's using the second example. The first is Christian communion. The second is the way the Jews would do their sacrifices. And their, their sacrifices would be such where when you do that, it's like you're sharing or participating in the altar. You're part of the communion or the fellowship of the sacrifice of that animal and you're connected with the priest who's offering it. You're connected with God who you're bringing that offering to. So there's oneness, there's unity, there's fellowship. So two examples, and then those two examples are to get to the point that he's making. In verse 19, so he says, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Going back to 1 Corinthians 8, 1, where he says uh, an idol is nothing. So what he's saying is in and of itself, the idol is not real. But then he says something that we all really need to pay attention to. He says in verse 20, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons 
and not to God. And do not want you, or I do not want you to have what? Fellowship, that's the key, with demons. So that takes a big twist, doesn't it? So an idol is nothing, and a, a practice that we may do uh, is nothing, but there's something that comes with the idol or the practice of certain things, and he says demons. So what does that mean? He's, he's saying that demons are involved in practices where we may as Christians say, well, that's, that's not real, it's not a thing, but he straight out says we are partaking or fellowshipping with demons when we do that. We don't have time now, but Deuteronomy 32, well, let's go there. Let's take a little second. Why not? So Deuteronomy, if you want to turn there, fifth book of your Bible, Deuteronomy 16, in Deuteronomy 17. So idol worship was a problem with the children of Israel the whole time. So God called them to be set apart, to be separate, to just worship Him and Him alone. And their whole time they had problems with worshiping the idols of the pagan nations around them. So Deuteronomy 32.16 says this, Oh, wait a second. I hear pages turning. Still hear pages turning. Okay, here we go. They provoked him, God, to jealousy with foreign gods. So those are idols. Again, those idols are really nothing. But because of their devotion to those idols... They provoke God to jealousy, and they were still worshiping God on one end through the Jewish practices that God ordained, but they were mixing in other things. And then it says, with abominations, they provoked him, God, to anger. Verse 17, it says, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, to gods with a little g, they did not know to new gods with a little g, new arrivals. In other words, what they saw as worshiping idols, God saw the spiritual reality behind what they were doing, and that was demons. So turn back with me. So demons, and get this, the same demons in Deuteronomy 32, the same demons in 1 Corinthians are still around. The same, they're still around. They still do the same stuff. And so any sort of practice, and, and goes back to thinking about our relationship with God when he says, he says jealousy a lot. And that's because our relationship with God is, is a covenant, like a marriage. And it's exclusive. There should be no other thing that enters into that. And so when we start dabbling in things, occult practices and many things sort of 
disguise. I know in, in some communities that the all-seeing eye is a big thing. You guys heard of that? Sort of a, a way for um, people, they're sort of like um, icons, those things. Things that are created by man to be a visual way to worship God where you can, you can see something and it, people say, well, it helps me worship God better. But that's what they did with the golden calf. They said, let's build a golden calf because Moses is gone. This will help us worship God better. And Jesus said, hey, if you're not worshiping God in spirit and in what? In truth then you're not worshiping God. And if you're practicing something, just be very careful about these things because Satan comes as an angel of light and he is coming to take us in a way where he wants to deceive us and enslave us, to take us captive to some sort of power. That's why in 1 John chapter 4, it says to test the spirits. See what this thing is. So maybe something that we're doing we think is just kind of neutral, and maybe it is. But there are many things that demons are attending to, and when we give ourselves to these particular things, we may not know it, but Paul says right here, we're giving ourselves to demons who are attending those idols. Heavy, huh? So yeah, an idol is not really a thing, but it's the, what's the spiritual reality behind that is a thing. I, for some reason, it popped into my mind certain music that uh, we listen to. I think that's a big one, too. That's a really big one. So then, in verse 21, then he says this. So you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. So he goes back to our communion, fellowshipping with God. He says you can't do that and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. And then notice in verse 22, he says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Again, painting this picture, I think this is really helpful to understand. Look at our relationship with God like a marriage. And what he's painting here is like if you're married and you're going out to dinner with somebody that's not your husband or wife by yourselves and you're flirting and that person makes you feel really good about yourself and that person you think about him a lot. This is what Paul is saying that we can do as Christians where we can be related, connected, having the Lord's Supper with the body of Christ, but yet we're flirting with all these other things, which we may not know, but they're probably demons in a lot of sense. But in any case, it's idolatry, and we're inviting all these things into our relationship with God. So how would that look in a marriage if we invited all these people into our relationship, into the 
intimate part of our marriage and we gain our emotional uh, joy and happiness and things like that. That's people talk about an emotional affair or whatever, but that's a good picture of what an idol is. Just inviting all these things to fulfill, satisfy us, give us joy when the Lord says, hey, I'm it. It's me and me alone. Now, all the other things in life flow from our fully devoted relationship with God. Just like, if again, a picture of a marriage. And the reason I'm using marriage is because he's saying provoked to jealousy. That's, that's what he's saying. But just like if you're married, you can, if, you, if you really pay attention to the exclusivity of your marriage and building that relationship and you are finding your satisfaction and your joy and things in that relationship then you can have other relationships. doesn't mean you can't have friends and can't. Obviously, you have to be careful. But the point is that when we're good with God, then everything else is better because there's an order. There's an arrangement to everything. So our relationship with God has to take priority. And then the other things, the idols that try to come in are just put in order where they're they succumb to the priority of that relationship that we have with God. So verse 23, he says now back to the, the practical part of all this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So two really good principles for us to consider when we're making choices about things. Can I do something? Well, maybe I can, but is it helpful? Helpful for what? Is it helpful for my marriage to God? Is it helpful for my relationship with God? Two, does it edify? Edify means build up. So if, if what I'm doing, I can put it through the grid of, is this helpful? Does this edify? If I put it through that grid, is it helpful to my relationship with God? Is it, does it build my relationship with God? Well, if it does, then it'll do the same in our relationships with other people. One other little caveat you may have remembered in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.12. He adds one more thing. He says, all things are lawful, but I won't do that which will bring me under its power. So there's a third grid. Edifying, uh, helpful, and bringing me under its power. Is there something that has the potential to bring me under some kind of a power? Then I don't want to do that. I can do it, but is it wise to do that? Absolutely not. So then he says in verse 24, Let no one seek his own, but each one... The other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, and that would be the meat that was sacrificed to idols. So the practical thing is if if you see meat and you want to buy it, buy it. But 
And, or he, he adds in verse 26, a principle, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. So that meat, God's given meat to bless and to edify. It's, it's all His. So if you can have that meat and give thanks for it, then praise the Lord for that. In verse 27, he says, If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you want to go or desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience' sake. But if someone says to you, This was offered to idols, well, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. So, so if you go to the meat market, and you don't know if it's an idle thing or not an idle thing. The idle thing's nothing, but you're in the market and there's meat and it's cheaper. You say, well, you can buy that. But if you go to someone's dinner or someone's house for dinner and they have a really nice meal for you and they set it out and you're about to eat it and they say, oh, by the way, this was offered to idols. Then don't eat it the reason is, is because the conscience of the person they're having you over for dinner and they know you're a believer, it might mess them up to know because of their conscience to know that you're eating something that has been dedicated to idols. Now, what's different from this than what we just talked about? Well, what we were talking about before is part participating in the actual dedication of the meat to the idol. Now, this is just buying it or going to somebody's house for dinner. So he says, you go to their house for dinner and, and, and they say it's dedicated to idols. If you still eat it, it might mess them up. It might stumble them, in other words. It might not build them up, so don't eat it. So then he says in verse 29... He says, conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? the questions being asked, he says, well, therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, just do it all to the glory of God. So if, if you just factor that in, if you're confused about all these things, just say, can I do this to the glory of God? Does this glorify God? And then he says in verse 32, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks, or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own, that's the key, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. So that's the whole point. Salvation, my conduct is such where I don't live for myself and do exercise what I can do, but I'm considerate of the salvation of other people and how my actions might affect them. Now, if your mind is on fire, 
if it's full. Well, we've just barely begun. Wait till you see what we're going to talk about next. And we still have time. Don't worry. <laughs> so check this out. Then he says, now, in all these things, he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So that's very good because it tells us that we can have examples and people that we sort of look up to in the faith, but we only follow those people as they follow Christ. Now, that, that is very hopeful, very instructive, because there have been a, a lot of in-the-limelight pastors recently that people have followed, and they have not been following Christ, and many of those pastors have crashed and burned because they weren't following Christ. But then a lot of the people that are following them also crashed and burned in their faith. So we, we can follow people as long as they're following Christ in a sense of discipleship or someone to look up to in the faith and things like that. So now, really gets fun. So he says... Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I have delivered them to you. It's an interesting statement because they haven't been keeping the traditions. And when he says traditions, he's not saying man-made traditions, which Jesus confronted often in his ministry. He's saying what I delivered to you of the things of God and the doctrine of God that you kept those things. He's saying that, but it's weird because they haven't been doing that. So it's hard to tell if he's just encouraging them for about what he's about to say, or is he being, is he being sarcastic? I don't really know, but he commends them for keeping the things that Paul delivered to them. And then he says, he lays down a principle that is so important. He says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So what is that? This is God's divine order. So as we look around in God's universe, we see order. And God created order in order for things to work according to God's plan. And so all the way right in the beginning, we see God created them male and female. He talks about how a woman came from the man, man came from God. So God created man and he created woman out of man. And all of that was to tell us, and God's working from that point on, was that God works on a system of order. His system of order, you notice in this particular text, in verse 3, he talks about men, he talks about Christ, he talks about women, and he talks about God the Father. So what that tells us is, that in God's order, 
He's created it such where in the creation realm there is simply roles and those roles do not suggest superiority or inferiority of those in those roles. When God has roles, He just says that there are certain ways that things work and that I have ordained and made things, and this is how things work the best in these roles. And He even puts the role of God the Son and God the Father. And God the Son, in Philippians chapter 2, says that he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God the Father, but yet he humbled himself. In other words, he submitted himself to God the Father, even though they're equal, they had different roles or have different roles. So that tells us that in God's creation, roles are important and do not mean at all inferiority or superiority. And roles were not created at the fall. Roles were created before the fall. And at the fall, what happened to roles is because of the fall, roles became competitive. Before the fall, roles were not competitive. Before the fall, everything just worked in order perfectly. Even creation has an order. All creation has an order. And then the fall came. And in Genesis chapter 3, part of the fall was a woman's desire would be for the man. And that doesn't mean that she would want him. It means that she wanted power over him. And as a result, the man would respond back by fighting the power that the woman wanted over him to try to have power over her. So that's all part of our sin nature. So this is what is being said in verse 3. And he's saying this in context of also of the church there. And so also just a little side note, when he, he says that man is head, when he says head, that means authority. And he doesn't, it doesn't mean he's talking about within the church and he's talking about within a family structure. He's not talking like every woman is or every man is to be head over every woman. It's in the context of a family and it's in the context of a church body. So as he says that, he's saying that in verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. So that's one of those things you just, you read through that in your devotions, you're just going, what is going on? So I'll tell you what's going on. And when you understand, it's very simple. There are principles in the Bible that do not change, but the application of those principles often do change with the culture. That's what we're seeing here. So just like if you are into real estate, what's the most important thing in real estate? Location, location, location. What's the most important thing in biblical interpretation? Context, context, context. So when you look at this, 
it doesn't make sense in our culture, but the principle does. Because something that Satan always does is he attacks the design that God has for man, that God has for woman, that God has for the world. So we see that in our culture. We see this attacking on the design that God has. So when one suggests the roles in their marriage, that there are roles, society will look at you like you're an idiot and you're stupid. And there's a reason for that because that's what Satan wants us to think. So he's saying here, just as in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's order. There's also order in marriages, and there is order in church families. That order, he says one thing that was going on. So this is why he's pointing this out. He's saying in verse 4, every man praying or prophesying having his head cover dishonors his head. So what he's saying is to wear a head cover would mean that you're under the authority of someone else. So if a man in a church situation or a church, corporate church setting has a head covering, what it's saying is I don't accept the responsibility of being under Christ because Right before that, in verse 3, it says, man is under Christ. So he's saying, I don't accept that responsibility. And me wearing a head covering says, I'm under the authority of someone else. It also suggests a role reversal or a feminist type of look at where a woman would say, or the man would submit to a woman being in control as the authority over him. So those two elements are in play. So he's saying that that is a disgrace in that culture because in our culture, wearing a hat hat or not wearing a hat doesn't mean the same thing as wearing a head covering. And and when they're saying head covering is is sort of like a veil to cover your whole whole head. So he's saying that that's disgraceful. And the disgrace wasn't the fact that you had something on your head or not. It was what that meant. And what it meant was for the man, the man saying, I'm not taking my role as authority and I'm going to let a woman do that or I'm going to let someone else do that or I'm going to let one of the pagan gods do that. So he's saying that's a disgrace. And so in Corinth, in that culture, some of the believers might be saying, well, now I'm free. I'm a believer now. So we don't have to go or or think about the cultural mores of the day. And so, you know, I don't need to wear, or or I should wear a head covering. And maybe that's being more sensitive and more understanding of the culture, more relevant. And Paul's saying, no, you're, you're saying to your culture, you're saying to those in Corinth that you are not under God, but you're under some other man-made authority. The second thing, In verse 5, he says, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that 
is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Again, in our culture, those things don't mean anything. In that culture, it did. So, a woman who, so women with their head uncovered, who would that be? That would be the prostitutes in Corinth, particularly, because the prostitutes would come down from this huge rock, an acropolis. There would be a temple on top of that acropolis to Aphrodite, the fertility god. And Corinth was a major center of travel and trade. A lot of people would be going in and out of there. And these prostitutes would come down at night without anything on their head to cover their head. And that would be an advertisement saying, I'm available. Now imagine if you're married and you're advertising you're not married. In a very small way, it's like not wearing a wedding ring, but that doesn't fully capture how big this is. So there are women in the Corinthian church who are saying, hey, now we're believers, so I shouldn't cover my head. But in the culture, when they were doing that, I was telling everybody, hey, look, this person in this church is saying they're available for sex. They're available for payment for sex. And so Paul is saying, that's not a, a good practice, that I want you to be sensitive to the culture that's involved here. And then he says in verse 6, if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn or shaved. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. So the prostitutes had shaved heads, and that's how they identified themselves. So he, he's saying, if, if you think it's okay not to wear a head covering, then why don't you just shave your head? He, he's just using an example of, why don't you go, go fully towards what you're indicating to the society, and that's that you are available for sex. He's using that point to say that shouldn't be a practice within your fellowship. In verse 7, for indeed, or for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. Again, going back to verse 3, where it's talking about just role structure and roles that were designed by God. In verse 8, he says, For a man is not from woman, but a woman from man. So the created order is being talked about here, which tells us that the principle is in place continually, that the principle doesn't change with culture, but the principle, principle stays the same. And he reaches all the way back to created order for that. So he says in verse 9, Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So the creation order was that God created man, and as he created man, then man needed a helper suitable for him. And so the woman was created to be a suitable helpmate for the man. 
Now you can see how far we've gotten from this and how in our culture that is looked at in such a negative way. But God sees this as a beautiful thing and a right thing. Now, there can be a lot of things that we can attach to that that are not biblical. Like the Bible doesn't say a woman can't work. That's sort of something that developed. It is important for the women to primarily take care of the household and the kids, but it doesn't mean she can't work. It's very hard in our culture and in a lot of cases for a one household income, but the focus of a woman should be to be helping, and the focus of a man should be to be a meek, loving, strong leader who women feel very confident that they can follow because of the submission of the man to God. And that's the key to male leadership is submission to God. And if a man is submitted to God, then it should make it very easy or a lot easier for the woman to follow suit because the man will be loving the wife like Christ loved the church. This is not a heavy-handed authority. This is not dominating over. This is leading like Christ led. This is imitate me like I imitate Christ. So as we lead as males, we lead the church and we lead our families like Christ. And the women are there to help support. And the Bible says in that role, that is where a woman can thrive the most is in supporting and helping. As we start to think about that, I just think about the women in our church and how blown away I am about all they do for the church. And without that, we wouldn't have a church. But when roles, either the man giving up his role, so that's a big thing too, isn't it? The man giving up his role or the struggle for roles and powers, when that starts to happen, Paul is saying in in the church, the church can't function like that because that's not God's design. God didn't order the church like that. And he didn't order a marriage like that. So when that happens, it's not sustainable. And it makes it very difficult to submit to God because if we can't submit to the order that God has given us here in these roles, then it's going to be very difficult to submit to God. So you see how society has really, really messed that up and how what I'm saying could be taken in a way that is very unaccepted and not appreciated at all. And a way where it's looked at as holding women down or holding women back. Hey, I look at the studies and the studies suggest, I saw a recent study, I don't know why it was white women in there, like from like Ford, middle-aged white women had a spike in suicidal thoughts, depression, and anti-anxiety drugs, and anti 
depressant drugs. And I have to think part of that is because of the not acceptance of God's man-made rules. But you know what that leads to? That leads to what Satan is really trying to do to our society, and it's to break down all roles. There's no man. There's no woman. There's no difference in the sexes. And you know what? In the Grecian Empire, in the Roman Empire, that was the last thing that happened before the society was completely destroyed. It's because when there's no truth anymore, when there's no right or wrong, when there's no standard, when you rebel against God's created things and try to do things in a way that's different than the way God made it, it, it's not sustainable. And that's what we see in our country. So I have a few minutes left and uh, feeling pretty hot here. So uh, let's, let's just get down to verse 16 and then, whew, this is tough. So verse 9, it says, now, Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. So there, there's interpretation. Symbol of authority. So a head covering means a symbol of authority. So it doesn't mean that in our culture, but in their culture, it did. So she should wear a symbol of authority, that there's an authority over me. If I'm married, I have authority over me or I have someone that's over me in that, that way. In verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. So that's interesting too. So that tells us that we're all in this together and we all need each other. And we all need each other to fulfill the roles that God has for us. Verse 12, for as a woman came from a man, even so man also came through woman, but all things are from, from God. So that shows the interdependence. Men need women, women need men. Verse 13, judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So we're just going to finish there, but I definitely have to touch on the long hair thing. So, long hair, men with long hair. So the question is, how long's too long? <laughs> see, you see how you got to be careful about how you interpret these things. The point here is amazing what's saying, because as he talks about roles breaking down, what he's referring to there is effeminate men. And so whatever that means in your culture, like maybe now men could have long hair and not, not necessarily effeminate. Could be effeminate. Depends on what you're doing there. But if culture dictates certain things, 
And in their culture, to have a man having long hair, it, he's probably referring to some of the male temple prostitutes who are acting like women. And he's saying when you're doing that, when you're reversing the roles, that's a sign that you're operating against nature. So naturally, generally, men have less hair than women. And I see a lot of you that are proving that <laughs> point. And it is true because of testosterone. As men get older, I, I think the statistics are over 80% of men go bald when they get older. And typically women don't. So you're saying naturally women, hair. That's, that's women have hair. So... And men don't. So you, when a man is acting effeminate, so do you, but do you see what is going on in culture? How relative this is? And he's saying that the church has to be different. The church has to be ordered the way God orders things. And when the church, this is what ha- is happening in the church. The church is trying so hard to be like the world in a lot of churches. I don't know. I, I can't say majority. It may be majority. But they're embracing all the things that we just said. They're embracing all those things. And you'll see LGBT flags hanging out of uh, churches and the acceptance of those things. And, you know, our, our stand, standpoint is we accept anybody to hear the truth of God's word, but we're not going to tell you that's okay because it's not. And we love you too much to condone that. We're going to say you need to be set free from that just like I do, just like all of you, from whatever our sin is, we need to be set free. And so does every homosexual, transgender, effeminate, whatever it may be, there's hope in the gospel. And that's the bottom line is there's hope in the gospel. And we can never let the world dictate to the church how to act, but we as the church need to dictate to the world who Christ is. So with that, let's pray. We barely made it. And... uh, Whew, that was tense. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. It's a lamp into our feet. Thank you for how you lead, guide, and direct us. I pray for our body, that the body of Christ here would gladly look at the things you say and fall in line with those things, Lord. Help us all by the grace of God, Lord, to submit to you, to not have any idols in our life, that you would be our everything, Lord. As you say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all things will be added unto you. So, Lord, help us, Lord, in this world to live our life out separated unto you, Lord, and to be lights and witnesses to a dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.